Welcome to The Struggle is Real, a show for 20-somethings that are trying to figure out adulting. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Each episode, we focus on solving a problem that we will face throughout this defining decade that wasn't covered in the classroom. This could include topics about our career, health, relationships, and money. Let's get into it. I try not to dwell on many regrets in life, but one opportunity I wish I had taken advantage of was my university's study abroad program. I went on my first international trip outside of North America in 2015, the week following my college graduation. I knew I was going to have a lot of fun, and I was excited to explore Europe, but I didn't realize how much it would change my perspective on life. I've been prioritizing traveling ever since then, and it's one of my few universal suggestions I encourage other people to try. One person who needs no encouragement is today's guest, Sydney Summerlin. From a young age, you could find her traveling the globe. At first, Sydney's mom accompanied her on many of these trips. Now, she does a lot of solo traveling or traveling with her twin sister. One of the most impressive characteristics of Sydney is her emotional intelligence. I swear, it is off the charts. Her open-mindedness, empathy, and curiosity are all obvious, and I'm guessing all of her traveling has helped refine these qualities. In this episode, we'll be talking a lot about travel, along with Sydney's quest into healthcare, where she is planning on working in pediatric oncology. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the Disney lover, public health enthusiast, and empathic thinker, Sydney Summerlin. So do you travel a lot with your sister? Is she like your companion travel partner for the most part? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's me and her and then my mom. We're the three who travel together for the most part. So since Savannah and I have gotten older, we travel together more so just the two of us because like we're of age where it's fine to go international, just you and two young women. It's it's good for us now. But then we were younger, it's always, you know, me, my mom and sister. And then my mom still comes on a lot of trips with us. But like Disney, my sister and I went out together by ourselves and have a great time. Mm. And your mom's a flight attendant, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So is that like, has she always had a love for traveling? What's, what's some of your like early memories of traveling? What were like some of your first places that like kind of wowed you? She has always loved travel. She always wanted to be a flight attendant and she wanted us to love travel as well. So she started traveling us when we were still infants, like from the very beginning we were flying and she always took us to like, then it was really a lot of tropical destinations, like the Caribbean and beaches and took us, she like had this point where she was taking us to all the best zoos in the United States. And we were just going all around the country doing that. So because she didn't, I mean, she wanted us to experience travel, but then she wanted us to do places like Europe and Asia when we were of age to really, truly appreciate those places. Because you can appreciate a beach at any age. Like that's awesome and fun at any age. But she wanted us to go and travel more when we could really understand the place we were going to and experience and enjoy the culture there. So it was a lot of early beach vacations. So that's definitely what I remember the most. And then now it's transformed more into us going with her on her trips when she's working and then like we get to go visit those places we probably otherwise would not get to go to so it's really great so real quick what was your favorite zoo that you've been to favorite zoo that i've been to i'm gonna brag st louis has an awesome zoo so i'm gonna it so it's really good too like what the heck free (laughs) exactly i'm like it is a free zoo it is awesome it's huge so I'm going to say St. Louis Zoo, but my mom has been to a zoo in Singapore, which I've never gotten a chance to go to. But it's it's basically a lot of the animals there are free roaming, not like, you know, like a lion or something. But you can definitely see like a python, like just like slithering along the side of the path. And there's monkeys everywhere. Like it's like open. <laughs> so I have not been to it and then I definitely want to. But if you go like at night, like it's definitely a different experience. Like it's a night zoo, too. So. That like, would be really cool. How, do you ride in something or do you just like walk around? No, you walk. Free rage yeah, zoo. <laughs> correct. It's just, so it's like certain animals that, you know, have posed limited risks to people. But like you, it's, it's, oh, you got to be like a certain level brave to do it because it, there is nothing between you and them and certain animals. Yeah. Like even, okay, I'm glad like it's not like lions roaming around. Yeah, but it's even not like a like, monkey like attacking yeah. you would be scary <laughs> yeah they're definitely i'm sure going to take stuff from you like you know if you leave food unattended and like yeah they're going to take stuff like that and like the snakes i i would keep my distance for sure but i would be okay with it but that's probably the extent of what i'd be okay with <laughs> <laughs> so what was your like first big international trip you took and what age were you I'm, i think it was the first big international was probably we went to paris Oh man, it was Paris, Rome, and Switzerland. I think that was the big one. I think we were like 12 when we went. 
for the first time. So then that kind of, my sister loves Paris. And my mom has always loved Paris the most, her favorite place she's ever been. So she wanted that to be our first trip that we went out of the country. Well, I'm sorry. First time we, we were traveling out of the country when we were little to the Caribbean and everything, but our first big international trip to Europe to experience the culture and the food and all of that was to Paris and Rome and Switzerland. So we loved that. It was beautiful. And we definitely did appreciate it at that age. So I think she, she waited to an appropriate age to do it. And that's only increased the love of Europe and travel that we have because we waited to a later age like that. But then my sister loves Paris as well. And she and I both, both speak French. We studied in college and in high school. And she got to study abroad in Paris during college, which was amazing for her and great for me because I, I got to go visit her while she was there. <laughs> so we loved France, Paris, all things in Europe. And then that's definitely the place that we've explored the most now that we're older. And that's where we usually like go to for, you know, like a quick vacation. Yeah. Yeah, I love Europe. I caught the traveling bug actually post-college. I This would have been 2015, I believe. I took my first international trip. Very first city was Prague, which was like amazing for a city to go to. I absolutely fell in love with it. Can't remember if I did Paris on that trip or not, but I've been I've been in Paris and also Montpellier, which is um, southern France as well. And then you take the train, like I think I did Montpellier from from Barcelona too, and like that oh, train okay. along the like nice. the water there is just like unbelievable. But it's really cool, like how much traveling impacts you, and that's why like I'm a I'm a big believer that everybody should strongly consider studying abroad through school. I almost wish it was like pretty hard requirement, like at least a strong suggestion. And in my case, I do a lot of recruiting. And anytime that I see study abroad on somebody's resume, I know that especially if it if it's not in like a, you know, program where you're just traveling around with the same like 15 English students that you came there with, that you're coming out of that experience with a lot of interesting thoughts. Did you ever travel or did you ever study abroad? I did get a chance to, not in college, unfortunately, because I was pre-med and the way the class requirements worked and the way I had my schedule set up, I did not get a chance to do it. It just did not work. But I was determined to do it for my master's program and I was a global health concentration. And so if you were global health and you had the option to do your practicum experience abroad, so I was definitely going to do it. I do that going into the program. So I set it up way ahead of time. And there were a set number of places you could go to, but I knew I wanted to go to Africa specifically. And I wanted to do it in a, because I would be there for three months and I would be working there in a public health organization. I knew that practically speaking, it had to be in a country where they spoke English because I wanted to be able to contribute to the work that they were doing at their organization. And South Africa was on the list and I'd always wanted to go to South Africa. So I, I picked it, it was an easy choice. And I, I the the three largest cities in South Africa, Cape Town, Johannesburg, and Durban. Durban is the city that I studied in, which is on the eastern coast of South Africa. And so I went down there for three months in January of 2020, actually. And then my program was automatically scheduled to end in March of 2020, like March 14th, I think it was. So as the pandemic was just beginning, I was in South Africa at the time. And so it was just a very unique experience being, you know, in this new country and a new, I had never been to South Africa prior to going there for my study abroad program, but my mom and sister flew down with me and, and took me down there and we did safari beforehand. So that was amazing. So that was a great, like, it was awesome. <laughs> so that was a great introductory experience, like to the country. And they were, it was great that, you know, it was a new experience, new place, but they were there in the very beginning to like familiarize me with everything. And it was like a certain level of comfort they were to bring, which was really important to me and important to my mom too, because she wanted to to see where I was going to be <laughs> staying. But so that was really great, but it was all new. And then we were watching this public health emergency start in the beginning. So it was really interesting to be working in public health. I worked in an HIV clinic. And so of course, HIV patients are immunocompromised. So it was a very interesting thing to be there in those discussions they were having about how can we protect our patient population and still serve their needs and get them their medication while the pandemic is closing in on us, we started getting our first cases in South Africa after the U.S. got theirs. And then everything started shutting down and the clinic was going to have to shut down. But then they were asking themselves, how do we still get our medication to our patients? How do we protect ourselves from it? Like, it was just a very unique experience that I hopefully will never have again, you know, being in a place where you're trying to figure out this huge problem with basically no information. But it was just really great. And everyone there, you could see how much they care about their patients. You could see how much the patients care about the staff there and knew that they were working to find that solution. 
but it was a great experience and I loved my practicum and I was very fortunate and blessed that it was taking place at the time that it did. Because if it even started a month later, then it would have gotten cut short. I would have to come home and I wouldn't have gotten that full experience. So I was really glad I got to go. Mm. Why, why Africa? Was that just uncharted territory for you that you were really curious on? I had been to Africa once before. I went to Ghana for two weeks in, in college, I think like sophomore year of college to do a global health learning program, just literally to experience a totally new healthcare system, to learn about how they practice medicine there. It was in a coastal city. I learned a lot from that experience. I loved being there in Africa in general. And I knew I wanted to go back and do something health related again. And so it was an easy choice for me. And and like you said, it was uncharted territory for sure, because we had never vacationed in Africa before. Um, we'd never been, my mom has been to Senegal a couple of times before for work, but I had never been before. My sister had never been. That was her first time going. So it was new for all of us. And I definitely wanted an experience. It was totally outside my comfort zone, as far away as possible, just because I wanted to get that different perspective from healthcare in the U.S. to healthcare in another place. Yeah. And what did you take away from that experience or that per perception or observation of other healthcare systems? Not, e not even gone. I'm assuming you've got exposed yeah. to a couple different systems out there. I think a lot of it is... A lot of healthcare comes down to the resource availability and the resources that you have. And so it's not necessarily about doctors in one country being more skilled at practicing medicine than doctors in another country, but it's doctors in one country having more resources or access to things that other doctors in another country may not. And then it also comes down to like geography a lot. Like, you know, if you're in a rural area and there's a clinic and it's two hours away on foot. Healthcare there is going to be very different than healthcare where you have a hospital every three miles, you know, if you're in a major city. So that all those different factors impact health. And like when you're in any tropical climate or you're in just any all around the world, there's different diseases and ailments that you may find. So the care, of course, is going to differ and you may have things there that you'll experience that you would never experience in the United States or vice versa. You may have availability of treatments in the U.S. that you wouldn't have other places. So it just changes the way you're able to provide care. It changed your patient population. If you have like in South Africa, they have the highest number of patients living with HIV. So your care there is going to look very different than your care here in the United States if you don't have that same kind of patient population. So it's just a lot of different things. And what I've learned a lot with public health is you have to know the community that you're practicing medicine in or working in or what have you caring for in general in order to properly provide care for them in the appropriate way that they need. So I saw a lot of the times where if you see someone and maybe they're not able to properly manage their HIV or their diabetes or what have you, you can't just automatically assume, oh, it's because they aren't interested in maintaining their diabetes or they're, they're not interested in, in caring for themselves in that way. But it's, okay, what are these other factors that are impacting the way that they're able to manage their diabetes? Are they able to are they unemployed? So are they able to get healthy food that will help manage their diabetes? Are they unemployed? So now they have to sell their antiretroviral medications to afford food for their family. Like it's all these other factors. And you don't know that unless you know your patient population, you know your patient in general, and you have the relationship with them where they're able to talk to you and tell you, this is what is going on in my life right now. This is why I'm not managing my diabetes properly. And then you have to take that next step to help them get to where they need to be. So it's like very layered and very complicated and it's not easy to do. But I think a big part of public health is addressing those community factors and those outside factors that happen, not necessarily on the individual level, but like addressing all those things so you can help improve their individual health, if that makes sense. I think that makes sense. Were they receptive in Ghana and South Africa both? Were they receptive to doctors or healthcare professionals? Do they take advice or did they keep an arm's distance? Because, I mean, you mentioning that you've got to build a relationship with your patient to understand what might be happening outside of, you know, the times that you meet, that would be critical to understanding trust and building trust, I'm guessing. Oh, of course. And I, I'll speak specifically to South Africa. From my experience there, what I saw and what the patients were communicating and the, what the staff was communicating was that the patients really loved the center that I was working in. And they loved coming there. Like there were patients who were taking three buses and walking for 30 minutes to get to the clinic when there were other clinics closer to them, simply because they loved the care that they were getting at the organization I was working at. 
it, it wasn't just an HIV clinic, but it was more of a, a community center. So in that same clinic, you would have your nurse who was caring for the patients. And then you also had a, I'm going to, I'm going to use counselor for lack of a better word, but basically someone who you could talk to once you had your appointment with the nurse, you could go in and talk with them about what's happening mentally for you, what's happening in your social life, what's going on, what support do you need? So they would have that other facet too. And then also there was just like a community room where you could hang out with other patients or other staff and just enjoy and spend time together. And it was, it was a community essentially. So it was like, they were members of their community working there, serving patients from their community. And they were supported in a number of ways, not just physically, it was emotionally and mentally, socially. And then that helped them feel more comfortable to share those other things that were happening in their lives because it was a place that they felt comfortable and that they were cared for in a respectful, culturally appropriate way. That's super interesting. I love the community aspect to all of that and how that parlays into building trust and, and you know, in the long run, honestly, providing better care. Do you see that in the United States? And how are you thinking about that, you know, going into medicine yourself and how you might apply that to your own practice? It's hard to do that when you're in like a big hospital system and you're seeing hundreds of patients. It's different too with these patients at the HIV clinic. They had to come every month or every two months to get their medication, to have a checkup, check their blood levels. So they were there frequently. So it's, it's easier to build a relationship when you're seeing your providers more often. And then because it was a space where you didn't just come for a medical appointment, you could come there. They had like youth activities that were housed there and different sporting events. There, there were workout classes in the morning that they held. So when you're coming there for other reasons other than just your care, it, it automatically is going to build that relationship. But when you're working like anywhere in a hospital system where it's not necessarily that kind of situation, it's going to be hard to, to get that same level of trust. Not to say it's not possible, but it, it's just going to be more difficult to do especially if you see, you know, a physician just one time and they refer you to see someone else and it's just a very transient interaction, it's going to look very different than if you're seeing a provider for a long-term chronic condition. So I think it's hard to compare the two, but for me at least, approaching any interaction I have with the patient, building that initial level of trust, I think comes from just respecting the patient first and foremost always and recognizing their concerns, not dismissing them, and then just trying to meet them where they are. So if that means if I'm speaking with a patient who the English is not their first language, like making sure that I'm speaking slower when I'm talking, I'm asking if they have any questions, asking them to repeat back to me what I'm saying to make sure that they understand, like making sure the level of comprehension is there. And then if they do need a translator there, then making sure that that person is present and ready and we have that service available to them. And again, that's speaking from a place of a privilege, essentially, because I need to be working in a place where a translator is available. I need to be working in a place where I have the time to spend this level of attention with the patient and have potentially, you know, a 30 minute to an hour long appointment where I'm not trying to see a hundred patients in a day. Like there's a certain level of, it's, it's not going to happen everywhere. So it's like, do you spend 20 minutes with a patient and you get that level of comfort or do you spend 10 and you get to see all your patients you're supposed to see that day? So it's, it's hard to balance the two. But I guess just for me, I, I just want to be cognizant and aware of that in every every interaction that I have and just do the best that I can. And if I'm seeing that I'm not being able to meet certain needs for the patient, then having conversations with leadership and my staff to see where can we change things, where can we fix things to kind of get to where we need to be. That seems like the crux of the issue from myself as a patient with with doctors, as it seems like they're trying to fit you into a five-minute slot. And I don't feel like, I'm connecting with them, that they're hearing me, that they even have the time to give me in that sense. I am guessing, and I've always thought there's probably a lot of pressure on them as well, as you mentioned, to make sure they see all 10 of the, their patients in that one hour versus spending 20 minutes with one patient. That's got to be challenging. Where do you stand on that? Like, would you, because obviously I want to provide care to as many people as possible, but at the same time, like now we're talking about level of quality care there as well. And seeing 10 and not providing any quality care versus seeing three and providing quality care to all three of them, that seems like that might be an obvious answer. But I'm guessing I'm wrong on some of this. And I, I just don't really have insider information on how the whole system or how it works in the United States in particular. I think it's different everywhere you're going to be. And I think priorities for leadership of different hospitals, clinics, what have you are going to be different and they're going to change. If you have a really busy, crowded clinic and you 
or maybe you're working with an uninsured population and this is the only place that they can go to receive care and it's an urgent issue, like you don't want to turn that person away. So it's triaging what's most important in this moment. Do we need to see this critical ill patient or do we need to spend 10 extra minutes with this patient? So it's unfortunate. And I wish that that wasn't the case where you have to kind of prioritize certain things, but you don't want to turn a patient away who's critically ill and who needs to receive care. But sometimes that does happen simply because of time constraints, money constraints. They don't have the staff to care for them, what have you. So I think that comes down to a systems level change that is needed to make sure that we're able to have the resources, staff, what have you, to provide care, the appropriate level of quality care to all the patients that we that we see and that we need to, basically that we need to meet them where they are, meet their needs in the appropriate way that they're asking us for, while also balancing our priorities and needs as, you know, healthcare staff, if that makes sense. I think that makes sense. So let's let's zoom back out. I didn't even ask you what area or specialty are you currently working towards? Right now, pediatric oncology is what I'm aiming for or what I'm most interested in. Can you I break that down in, in layman's terms? Sure. Yeah. Pediatric is it's children and oncology is cancer. Mm-hmm. So that's, I would like to practice in a hospital and work with pediatric oncology patients. I think that's Right now, this, I've been wanting to do that at this point for probably seven or eight years now, and I haven't strayed from that. And I've done a lot of shadowing and working like I work, you know, in the HIV clinic and in Ghana, I was shadowing different um, departments. So, and then I worked here for research for an OBGYN in the United States. So I've done a lot of different specialties and it's definitely pediatric oncology that I'm leaning towards the most, but I know that that definitely could change in medical school. And I'm okay with it if it does. I just want to do especially to that I'm passionate about. And right now that's pediatric oncology. If that changes, that's okay. So would you want to work with toddlers under three or like anything up to, cause, cause I, so I work, so I do some content creation for a nonprofit called Be Present and their whole focus is on the AYA community or adolescents and young adults, particularly with cancer. And it's this like mixed bag of people that are stuck in between pediatrics and adult hospital systems. And they find themselves at 18 years old in a wallpapered room with, I don't know, Paw Patrol on on the side and the healthcare providers speaking to them like their children. But then at the same time, not necessarily fitting into the adult population either because they still are developing in a sense and they're still a child in some ways as well. So I find that really interesting and like a challenging situation to be in. And uh, the organization is all focused on presence, particularly with with friends. It's actually a really cool story. The founder, she lost her her daughter to cancer. She was, I think, maybe like 21, if I believe. And like so many other stories that I've heard through this organization as well, her friends were all there, supportive. The first month, two months, three months, friends started falling off. They were in college. They, they got busy with life. They stopped they stopped checking on her and she kind of looked up one day and found out the only people that were still there were, you know, her immediate family. And she was longing to be with her friends and to be in that, that population at that with, you know, people at her age. I mean, she was just coming from high school and college where all you did was spend all your free time with your friends and you chatting and whatnot. And then when friends did come, it was weird. They didn't know how to really relate to them. They didn't know how to address it. They didn't know if they should like act like things are normal or ask, how are you feeling? All of this weirdness. And then people just didn't come. And there's some research that was coming out too, that loneliness and that isolation with that population in particular, and the the lack that there isn't a lot of resources or thought put into that particular community is, is actually a huge struggle with, with the cancer and survivorship as well. So the organization's all kind of focused on that piece to it. And I find that really interesting. Do you have a age segment as well that you feel really passionate about? I don't have one at this time. I don't really have uh, like a, a set age range that I'm leaning more towards. I think once I start interacting with them in the hospital and doing rotations, then I'll, I'll maybe have a better idea of it. But I think that's really interesting what you were saying about the loneliness component and, and isolation, how that affects care. And I think that's true of, any disease, you know, especially or with an aging population, like, you know, loneliness when you're elderly or when you're going through any kind of chronic condition or any, you know, with COVID, like you're in isolation, you're by yourself, you know, that definitely affects your 
mental state and that definitely can have impacts on your physical health. So I think it's really great that the organization exists and is trying to address things like that. It's a very sad reason that it exists, but I think it's great that it does. Hey, thanks for listening to The Struggle's Real. A quick word from our sponsor and then we'll be right back. You know I love covering personal finance topics on The Struggle Is Real. I frequently get asked the question, how do I start investing? My suggestion, check out the Build Wealth by Investing course created by the founder of Personal Finance Club and friend of the show, Jeremy Schneider. This course includes everything you need to know to invest in index funds. And if you've been listening to The Struggle Is Real, you know I believe this is the most optimal, consistent way to build wealth. I don't believe in any gimmicks or get-rich-quick schemes. This course doesn't include any of that, but you will find investing broken down into easily understandable concepts and simple-to-follow rules. He'll also walk you through how-tos, such as how to open up an investing account, how much to invest, and how to choose an index fund. Jeremy and his team literally built the personal finance course I wish was taught in school. If you are someone that wants to start investing, but you just don't know what to do, this course is perfect for you. This course also makes for a great gift for a 20-something getting started on their personal finance journey. You can check out the course using the link in the show notes or go to justinpeters.co forward slash deals. By purchasing the course through our link, you are supporting the show. So thank you for that, as that is how we continue to expand the show. If you want a teaser, check out episode 57 with Jeremy, where of course, I got to ask him a bunch of questions about investing, the cost of fees, and early retirement. Now back to the show. You were telling me 60% of students applying to med school get declined. And that seems like an outrageous number. I Maybe some need to be declined because they're just not well suited for the profession. But A, who's to say that that's true? <laughs> and B, whenever there is a huge shortage, like why not consider letting more people train and build into this profession? <laughs> yeah. 60% is an outrageous number for any, you know, any application process. 6% getting denied is, is, is a high number, objectively speaking. And yes, there are going to be some people who maybe don't have that strong of an application. And so, you know, maybe warranted, maybe not this cycle and they get rejected that cycle and then they can build up their application, improve and reapply if they like to do so. But I don't think it's as simple as just having more physicians and doctors because with that comes so many more resources that you need at the medical school level to train more people and train more people in your program and the hospital and clinic level to support the training of more physicians because there's so much integration of medical students in the hospitals with doctors. If you have more medical students coming to train with doctors, that puts more of a burden on the existing physicians to train those doctors, these upcoming doctors in an appropriate quality way. And that's definitely hard to do while they're balancing all the other responsibilities that they have. And then it puts more strain on the residency programs because you have to open up more spots and then have more positions. And then it's, it's you know, it's a ripple effect. So it's not just simple as, okay, open up more medical school spots. And then that's it because you have to make change at literally every single level. And then you actually have to have jobs for these positions when they graduate. And then restructuring hospital systems where the space for having more physicians in a hospital or in a clinic system, opening more clinics, hospitals, more practices is just, it's a long-winded process, not to say that it's not worth it, but it's just you have to have buy-in at so many different levels to make this happen. And it's just going to be really hard to coordinate that level of change. And I think that might be why it hasn't happened yet, because it's just so difficult to do it at that many levels. I would agree with that. I can now, you painted a good picture and I could see how that could be a potential challenge. Are there yeah. any more obvious solutions to this issue and or like if you had a magic wand and could change one thing about the process that you feel like could really make an impact assuming that this is 100% your opinion like let's just put that out there like you're allowed to just like vent and, and you know say it as your opinion here what would you do to change something about the medical school application process yeah I guess uh, if you feel like that might be the crux of the uh, lack of quality care but let's just go and simply focus on that how how does, let's get really defined with this, how does the United States provide more quality medical care or what, or maybe even what's a better question to be asking in this situation too, considering, like I said, that's servicing 400 million people that <laughs> with limited resources, because surprise, surprise, the United States actually has limited medical resources as well, just like everybody else does and such a 
unique population or diverse population of people that they are serving as well. Like everything from the super wealthy down to the people that are very poor. Some people that live two hours from a hospital, some people that live two minutes from a hospital. It's not like <laughs> we can really narrow in on one specific population of patients as well. And I think that's the really unique thing about it. And I've learned a lot with my public health experience is that you can't just blanket say this will work in every community and this is what we should do. So it's it's very much about knowing that community that you're working in. And then it's great if you come from the community that you're practicing in and you're now working as a physician because that in and itself helps build community trust because they have someone who knows them and knows their their community. But then also, you know, the population, you've lived there, you've experienced it. So, you know, specific challenges that they're facing. So that's definitely helps if you, you know, if you grew up in a place and then you get to practice there, that's a really special, unique thing. But that doesn't always happen. And I think you can still be a strong physician if you go into a community that you haven't worked in before, if you take the time to understand and learn about them and connect with the community themselves. But I think there's just qualities that you can say that contribute to quality care, not necessarily like things that need to be in place, but just like traits that you should have as, as any person working anywhere in the community, just like respect for the population, empathy for them, understanding, a desire to listen, a desire to learn, probably most importantly, and then trying to make sure that you are culturally competent, you have cultural humility, which means that you understand that you aren't from that community, you aren't from that place, but you are trying to understand, trying to learn, and you value the knowledge that community has, even more so maybe than the knowledge that you have about that preconceived notion that you have coming into a community. Like you're not entering it with ideas and conceptions. You're taking your time to learn and understand from the people there. And then that's how you develop your understanding of the community. So you you know different values a community may have, but then you understand that even if you think you know those values, you have to actually talk to them and understand that maybe everyone in that community is not sure this value. Maybe it's not the same for everyone there. Maybe it's the older population who shares this value, but the younger population is different. And you're not going to know those things if you don't talk to the people, get to know them and actually understand them. You're so attuned to empathy. And I, I remember Kyle on a call, maybe a couple, maybe last week or so, he mentioned we were talking about you. And he said, you are such a good listener and you're really good at empathizing without necessarily having gone through the situation that someone is experiencing. Is that coming from travel or, and have you heard that, that feedback before? Or do you recognize that, that quality in yourself? I, I do recognize that quality. I always try to, I think it's, de it's definitely 100% come from travel, but then also my education as well, just probably my, definitely public health education specifically, but trying to never come to the situation or, or, or interaction with the person that you meet with a preconceived notion about who they are, what they represent, or their value. It's like everyone is, has value. Everyone has, you know, worth and it's not defined by their income level or their education or any of those other things, but it's just like, as a human being, they have value, they have worth, they deserve respect and empathy and compassion. And then, you know, if you hear something about a person, you're conditioned to think a certain way about what that means about them. But I always try and like catch myself whenever I hear something and say, okay, like you do not know their situation. You do not know their life. You do not know their background. Do not make assumptions about them. Like they're a person and they don't, you know, they're not, they're deserving of the empathy and the respect and care that I would give to any person regardless of their life situation. So I definitely try to approach every situation like that and not just hear one thing and think, oh, they're one type of person and then just dismiss it like that. That's really hard to do though. I find I, ca I catch myself in those situations very often as well. Like, especially in like a work context or something yeah. because you're only narrow focused in like how they show up to work, but then you have to realize, just like you were talking about with patient care as well, they have a life outside of that moment that you're currently experiencing with them with as well. So just because someone isn't performing at some level or expectation that you have, it might be because of personal reasons or anything in particular. It's really hard to pull yourself out of that situation. Like, do you find yourself, like you catch yourself often or do you feel like you're pretty good in default into like understanding that? I, I think now I've I've done it so many times that I'm I'm conditioned my my default is not to think the the worst about them, but it's to assume the positive side of it. So like if someone's like rude to me or makes like an offhanded comment, like, you know, working in, you know, in a service organization, you may have customers who are rude to you and and just make a snap comment you aren't exactly polite. But my default now is not to think, oh, they're they're a rude person, but maybe they're having an off day. Maybe something just happened, maybe they're they're tired and stressed and just kind of breeze past it and not take it to heart. 
and then kind of just assume the best in people because that's what I want them to do for me. Like if I have an off interaction with someone, I don't want them to assume that I'm a bad person and just, and you know, it's, it's most likely that I just had something negative happen, something like that. So I kind of, my mom always says, treat others like you want to be treated. So I, I want them to treat me with the empathy and respect and assume the best. So I try and do that for others as well. I'm going to pull Kyle into the situation now too. He's been quietly listening in the background here. <laughs> uh, Kyle, do you see this pretty often in, in Sydney? I know you brought this to my attention maybe last week or so. Wow. Thank you for pulling me in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, I love this thread line of the conversation. Thank you for tying this in. This is such a valuable skill. Just one point that I wanted to make is you don't necessarily have to think of your position on where you're at with being able to empathize as more like a default. It's a skill that you have to learn. That's hard. And it's, there's some kind of balance between setting an expectation and being able to necessarily emphasize. I see this all the time in my leadership position at Target. I want to be able to establish a clear expectation that I hold everyone accountable to that expectation. So where do you draw the line on these things and how do you go about that? I, I find it really interesting because as I've progressed through my 20s, I've become more aware to this and maybe because I've grown as a person as well. And whenever you change as a person and just like Sydney was saying too, like you want people to approach you with like, I always have good intention more times than not. I, I actually just had this situation this morning. I was changing the record and I messed up the record player for Gabby and she kind of like snapped at me and was like, don't do that. And I was like, Gabby, you know, I wouldn't like intentionally try to break your record player. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, you're right. Sorry about that. <laughs> and we come to that, that I, I find that often in, in my twenties, I was, I was catching myself as I was going through to like empathizing with people more or understanding their story and not trying to like judge them for face value as well. Maybe because I didn't want to be judged for the first interaction I had or for a, something that I, some, some person I was, and you guys have a really interesting relationship in particular too, because you've known each other since middle school. It seemed like you probably had a large gap in there of little to no interaction. And then you kind of recreated this relationship. I'm assuming you guys probably didn't even bring any of your like thoughts around this person into your current adult relationship, because who you were in middle school is probably way different than who you were or who you are right now. Yeah, we'll joke around quite a bit. Like, <laughs> man, if you knew me in school, I was walking around in orange sweatpants and orange hoodie. <laughs> and so <laughs> please don't bring that up. <laughs> please don't bring that into your perspective of who I am now. I mean, we're we're honestly constantly changing and going yeah. through and, and being able to understand that someone isn't even necessarily who they are right now. They can be entirely different one year from now. That's a quality that I like, that I admire in anyone is, is this person trying to be better? Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. I think that's admirable. And I've just rethought a lot of those relationships, especially high school relationships of mine. Like I, I try to like drop what I thought about them from high school. And like, if they, if they pop back up in my life, especially with the podcast, now that I have something forward facing, I've had a few people reach out to me and be like, oh man, I absolutely love this. And these were like friends from high school. And I love to hop on a call with them and just like see what they're up to in their life right now. And it's so vastly different over like a six to eight year period. And it's crazy where people go and where their values start to align and like who they've changed and developed into. And I hope people also see that with myself as well. I mean, the person I was in high school, even though I feel like I was always like self-development, like focused and like had aspirations and whatnot. But at the same time, like, I'm like, please do not consider who I was in high school, who I am right now. And I think we're all looking for that in, in a sense. <laughs> One of those things that people in their 20s, I would assume most people struggle with is they're looking around at where their peers are at in life and where they're at in life. And they're like, am I on the right path? Am I going too slow? Am I making the wrong decisions? And then you see your peers and where they're at and how you might've thought in like five years ago, you would be, you would have been where they're at. I went to SLU pre-med thinking I might have wanted to go down that ra rabbit hole with, you know, pursuing medicine and whatnot. And, and then, you know, you can't help but compare yourself to other people in, in that regards. Yeah. Sydney, what, did you find yourself comparing yourself to others? Because you applied to med school three different times. Like that had to be hard. Okay. First time I didn't get in. All right. I know the 60%. I'm just on the wrong side of the coin this time. Second time you're like, you got to be looking around like, what's wrong with me? Like what's wrong with my application? Like, why am I not making this? <laughs> like, what were your thoughts going through there? 
Yeah, it, definitely the comparison with the med school has happened more than anything because you're comparing yourself to you know, everyone else who's applying. But then also I had a lot of friends from college who were also pre-med. Yeah, was, that was my, you know, my friend group, my primary friend group. And they did get accepted, not necessarily the first time some got accepted the second time, but I was the last, I'm like the last one of my friend group. That definitely in and itself was like hard to reconcile in my head, but that, that kind of thinking did not serve me in any way, shape or form. So I was like very quick about moving far away from that and not letting myself even like think those thoughts and just trying to figure out instead, like looking critically at my application, thinking where are the gaps here? What can I do differently? Who can I reach out to for support? Who knows better than me about this process? And then doing those things and then actually taking the next step to improve my application. So for me, I'm always like, if there's a problem, I need to create a plan and then actually start working on that plan. And once I do that, I start to feel much better about it. So I did those things I need to do to improve my application and it's worked out, thankfully. But, you know, with the, after I didn't get in the second time, I reached out to every medical school I applied to and asked them if they did feedback meetings with applicants about their application. Mm. And not all of them did, but I had six schools who did have those meetings with applicants. So that was six different admissions committees I heard directly from who looked at every aspect of my application, told me what was strong, what needed improvement. It's hard to hear things that, you know, you need to improve upon. But I was like, I'm, I'm always ready to hear those things because this is going to get me to where I want to be. And so I did the things that they said I need to improve on. Then I've gotten accepted this round. The comparison was there, but it, it was not beneficial at all. And if I had focused on the comparison rather than focusing how I could improve, then I could have potentially not applied again. You know, like thinking that I just wasn't a strong enough applicant or not having enough confidence in myself and my application, then I could have not, you know, done it the third time, which would not, which was never something I wanted to even consider. Sydney, that. That's like the most impressive thing about you. Whenever Kyle was pitching you to me to be a guest on the podcast and he was telling me about your story and the grit and the determination and motivation to apply to med school, not once, not twice, three times, because not only is it the physical work of completing the applications and submitting the required work, it's getting on all of these interviews, taking all these interviews, going through that whole process. And then you, on top of that, added this whole feedback cycle as well, reaching out to everybody that you applied to, getting some feedback, taking those calls, writing down those notes, taking a serious look at the feedback that you got and implementing that into your application. And then on top of that, you told me it was like, not like hundreds of dollars, but thousands of dollars to apply to medical schools as well. So now you got to turn around and go out and work, I don't know how many hours to make enough money to reapply the next year for med school. Like that is just absolutely insane to me. Yeah. And then I do want to note that the privilege associated with being able to apply three times because not everyone is able to apply three times simply because of how much it costs. And they do have financial aid options for you. They're somewhat limited. And of course, it's based on your income, but they are there. But just objectively speaking, it's expensive to apply. So doing it three times, I was blessed enough. I was able to afford to do it three times. And then Again, the amount of time it takes to do these applications, that's extensive time. So if you don't have the time to spend, you know, it, I would hundreds of hours on these applications and then plus the interviews and prepping for the interviews. And the, it's, it's an extensive thing. So there's a lot that goes into being able to apply multiple times that I think they do prepare you for, at least in my undergrads, they, they let you know it's, it's a very detailed, extensive process you have to be ready for. I think for me, I was not daunted by, obviously I didn't enjoy doing the applications three times, but I wasn't daunted by that. That wasn't the reason why I wasn't going to do it. Part of it is I knew that, not to say in, in a cocky way, but I knew that I had prepared for, for medical school. Like I knew I had done the shadowing and the volunteer and the academics and the exams and the prep that I needed to do. So I knew that I had a strong application uh, as a baseline. But I think a big part of it was that I'm, I'm a procrastinator, 100%. <laughs> and the application process, the way it is, it's a rolling cycle. So the applications open in the summer and early June, that first primary application. But then because there's a, there's a set number of spots schools have, and then they have a set number of interview spots they're going to offer to students. And so the applications are open like until like late fall, early December. But the earlier you submit your application, the better chance you have of getting an interview. For the most part, you know, there's obviously your application matters too, but it's better if you submit early because if they're looking at yours in August and they have 500 interview slots left, you have a better chance of getting one than if they look at it in November and they have 100 left. 
So it's like, it's better if you submit as early as possible. But for me, A, I procrastinate and B, when you're submitting it, you want it to be as perfect as possible. You don't want a single error. You're obsessing over every word you write and over everything you say. And there's a character count and word count. So it's, it's very tedious. So when you want that final product, you want it to be as strong as possible. So hitting submit was very hard for me because I wanted it to be the best it could be. So then I didn't submit as early as I wanted to for both the first and second cycle. But for this third one, I was like, nope. I'm Day one, here we go. <laughs> the second it opened, I'm submitting. I prepped it in like April. I was, I was doing the application. I was ready to go. Submitted as early as possible. And that definitely helped because I did get interviews earlier in the cycle because I submitted it earlier. So that's definitely part of it. And, and I think a lot of pre-meds probably are also, you know, really particular about the, what they're submitting as you should be, because it's, it's important. But, yeah. um, so I think some others would probably struggle with that too. And so it's hard because you want to submit as big as you can, but you also want it to be quality work. So it was a very interesting period. <laughs> <laughs> so when school start? It starts in August. I haven't confirmed where I'm going. So basically the process is, is essentially a year long application process, but now we're at the very end of it. And so there's certain deadlines where you have to commit to a school where, where you're saying, this is where I'm going to. And then once you do that, you can't remain on any wait list any longer for other schools. You have to decline all their, all other acceptances that you have. And that's like, usually like it differs per school, but for mine, at least it's in June. So I'm going to remain on the wait list for the school that have, I'm on the wait list for until June. And then I will commit to the school I was accepted to once that happens, if I hadn't heard back from the schools I'm on the wait list for. So, but the waitlist stuff, all the movement usually happens in the beginning of May. So next week is when the big week for it. So, <laughs> so next week is next week. And then the second week of May is usually when the majority of it happens. So if I don't hear back in like the next couple of weeks and I'm just going to commit to my school and I'll be happy, I'll go there. So let's go. Let's go. Yeah. So any big, any big plans for the summer before school starts in August? Yeah, I'm, I'm, we're going to travel. <laughs> <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> we're definitely going to travel. We, of course, have um, a Disney trip planned. And then we're trying to actually, my mom got this deal a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic. And of course, we haven't been able to go. We keep pushing back because of the pandemic. But she got this deal to go to Tahiti. So we're hoping to get to go at the end of this, end of May. So if that happens, that would be awesome. And my sister is in grad school right now. And she's off for a couple of weeks before she starts her internship this summer. So that would be like our family trip that we get to take together. So that would be really great if we get to go. So fun. So fun. Sydney, before I ask my last question, where's a good place for people to connect with you? If they resonated with something you said, if they have a follow-up question, I saw you're not super active on Instagram. You were, and I, now you're on like a two-year hiatus on that. <laughs> That's exactly right. I have not posted in two years. <laughs> but I, I'll, I'll, I need to, yeah, I'll restart that eventually. So Instagram is great. I still watch, like, I get on Instagram, look at other people's posts. I okay. just never post myself. <laughs> gotcha. That makes sense. So Instagram might be a good place. What, where's, what's yeah. your handle? It's at Sid underscore with underscore uh underscore why <laughs> <laughs> cool and that's always in the show notes guys if that's a little bit easier for you to, to track down so final question for you if you had the opportunity to teach a 16-week class to a group of graduating college seniors on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom what would you teach and how would you teach it it's a bit of a cop-out and these classes already exist but i think public health is something that everyone should know about it wasn't any i had never even heard the term public health until my, my sophomore year of college and i looked at global health specifically because that's what i was interested in but when i started taking those public health classes i learned so much more about the world than i had i didn't even know that i didn't know and i think it helped me a really understand people better but understand the conditions that impact their health more and it, it's not just learning about other people but learning about yourself as well so looking at how your environment impacts your health and how your income impacts your health and how you can take better care of yourself, your own health, your own community. I think that's valuable for everyone. Particularly, there was a class I took in college that was looking at the politics. It was called the politics of disaster. And it was focused on how a lot of the natural, so a lot of incidents that happened that were at the base, it was a natural disaster. So like a hurricane or a fire or something like that. But then there were all these different man-made components of it that made the disaster 10 times worse than it should have been if it had just been a natural disaster itself. And that was probably the most eye-opening class I took all of college. And so to me now, it's 
every situation that I see, I'm looking at it from a critical lens and looking at it differently, like you're reporting on something, but what are the factors here that are missing? What are the contributing factors to the situation? Who is being left out of this story? Who is being overlooked? Who is hurt by the situation the most? And I think wherever you're working, you know, in any situation, if you're involved in policy or if you're in, in law or advocacy, all these different things, knowing the community and making sure you're critically looking at a situation or a policy or an action, thinking who is being left out of this, who is being hurt by this, who is benefiting from this is a very valuable thing. So I think I would definitely have that kind of component of being able to look at a situation, analyze it from all directions and all lenses in the class. And I would teach it using basically the same way this class did with using case studies of different situations and showing how this is what it was, but then this is all the things that are missing that you didn't see when the news reported on it, things like that. Hmm. Do you remember an example of one of the case studies? Did you like Hurricane Katrina or something? That's, that's, that's exactly what the most eye-opening one for me was Hurricane Katrina and how it was a perfect storm for a hurricane, but then how there were all these warning signs that New Orleans was not ready for a hurricane, that they were not prepared. And years before they were alerted of these things, Nothing was done about it. Reports were left unread on the desk. Nothing was, nothing took place with the evacuation. It was all done horribly. They didn't account for the homeless population. They didn't account for the fact that a lot of people did not have transportation to get themselves out of the city. And then, of course, it was black and brown communities who were the ones who were in the worst hit zones, who didn't have the food and the care and the help that they needed. And then even in the places they evacuated them to, it was disease and there was not enough space and it was no food, no water. It was hot. Like, all these different things where an appropriate disaster plan and a place that's susceptible to hurricanes would have prepared one for. And of course, you know, I understand preparing for that and dealing with that is hard, but there were so many different areas that they could have improved upon. Even after the disaster happened, after the fact, the response was too slow. Like I was very upset reading about that. And, but that is not the story that was painted in the news. Like it was Hurricane Katrina was the strongest hurricane ever. Like that was the narrative that was taking place. And then some outlets did report on the poor conditions when they were evacuated, but not the way that it needed to. And it did not paint the full story. So just knowing that, and then there were other examples of it too, like now with other natural disasters that I see and all the, you know, with wars happening, like you, you got to look at it from all lenses. And sometimes you got to hunt for the information because it's not readily available, but it's important to know those things too. Agreed. That'd be a super fascinating class. Yeah, be fun. it was amazing. <laughs> uh, I loved that class. Uh, Sydney Summerlin, guys, this was fun. I had a blast. You are so impressive and just at the start of your journey. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on The Struggle is Real. Sydney, it's uh, been a pleasure. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this conversation today, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified about new episodes. If you want to connect with me, send me a message on Instagram. I'm at Justin Lee Peters. You can find show notes with links to everything we discussed today at justinpeters.co. This episode was produced by Gabby Dimeke. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Thanks for tuning in.